It says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we humbly ask now for just the help of your Holy Spirit as we continue in our worship by just submitting ourselves to the authority and the truth of the Word of God. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would prepare each of us accordingly, and we ask that it would be the power and the person of your Spirit, God, that speaks things to our hearts as we open the Word of God to learn it together. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name, inside and outside, said, Amen. Amen. You know, question this morning as we begin our passage, what does it truly mean to be a part of God's church? And I emphasize God's church. I want to say these verses, I think, give to us some insight regarding that. The letter that's being written here is being written to a local church congregation assembled at the city of Corinth. And we know from Acts chapter 18, we studied Acts not too long ago, that it was actually Paul the Apostle who during his church planting missionary efforts, who was going around establishing and planting churches, that this is one of the churches that Paul himself planted. In fact, he even remained among this congregation for a year and a half after establishing the church teaching them the word of God and ministering to the people there. That's actually, except for Ephesus, where he was three years, the second longest duration that Paul stood in any one particular church before he would then turn the church over to the internal leadership and go on and begin planning and establishing more churches throughout Asia Minor. So important to take that in mind. That means that this church got a considerable amount of Paul's ministry, They received a lot of teaching from Paul the Apostle and God's Word. Paul had spent time with them for a year and a half, so that would tell us as well that Paul and the members of this church, they have a bond. They know each other well. It wasn't as if he was just there for a few weeks or even a month. He spent a year and a half, which tells us that they knew each other well. They had formed a relational bond. And so Paul's writing from that reference point of having a a connection with them, knowing the people and their faces, And since Paul has moved on, but he's still corresponding with them. And in his correspondence with them, he hears of some issues that they're having there in the church. Now, let me clarify. These people at Corinth clearly knew the Lord, but yet the church was having some real problems nonetheless. Mainly, they had let the lifestyle and the patterns and ideals of the world outside of the church to infiltrate into the church. And the people in the church, those who were followers of Christ, had kind of let the ways of the world begin to influence them as Christians. They let the ideals and the patterns of how the world did things kind of influence how they functioned as a church family. And they needed some real guidance. More than that, they needed some correction. And this is what Paul writes this letter to address, some particular areas that needed to be addressed. And they even had had some questions that were asked of Paul that he's addressing in this letter. You'll notice the tone and the style of this letter is very strongly correctional. But at the same time, it's also instructional because you don't offer correction just in a harsh way and then not offer the instruction afterwards. 
of how to fix what you identified was wrong. So Paul does both in this letter, provides correction and instruction, and sadly we'll see there were many problems that had to be kind of sorted out among this church. People there in the church had become, many of them, very proud. There was issues of division. There was strife going on because the Christians in the congregation, many of them had different opinions. Imagine that, Christians with opinions. Even existed in the early church. They had different convictions and ideas about things, and they were fighting and squabbling over things, wanting to be the one who was right. And they had really a real need to just grow up spiritually. Paul identifies them as kind of acting like spiritual babies still. And kind of Paul says, and look, it's time to get out of the nursery and grow up a little bit spiritually and to mature in the way they were relating to one another and how they were making their decisions. The church, we'll see, was kind of characterized by a problematic attitude of self-centeredness. And this was becoming a real plague among the church of Corinth. We're going to see they had major problems with sexual sin being practiced among the people who were a part of the church at Corinth. Even worse than that, not only were people in the church practicing sexual sin as professing Christians, but even more than that, the church was kind of just taking a blind eye to it and acting as if it was an acceptable thing and it was no big deal to be identified or addressed. The Christians at Corinth were actually taking each other to court and suing one another before worldly judges. They were struggling in different areas of their marriage relationships, respecting their marriages, mistreating their spouses. People were leaving their marriages unbiblically. Single people were struggling to know their purpose. There was confusion about how to manage God's money among them as a ministry. They were actually, we're going to see, getting drunk at the love feasts or the potlucks, the church potlucks, as well as the communion services. People were actually getting punch drunk at gatherings of God's people coming together. They were exercising spiritual gifts, which is great and a legitimate and an important thing, but they had become very dysfunctional. And their motive in exercising the spiritual gifts had become very disorderly, and it was actually becoming more of a distraction than anything else. And they even had some distorted theological ideas about the resurrection and the afterlife. So this church, in essence, had become too similar to the world outside of the church. And that wasn't God's design, nor was it healthy for the congregation. And so the Holy Spirit prompts Paul, therefore, to write this letter to address many different topics that were helpful for them and honestly are helpful for any church for that matter. The theme of 1 Corinthians is basically life in the local church, life in the local church. It was written to give direction regarding the affairs of the local church assembly and the practices and operations of the church as they would gather together. In fact, some of the topics we'll see covered, I jotted down a list of them here. Let me just give you a a foretaste. He's going to talk about divisions and disputes over issues when they arise and the need to be mature in how they're handled. He's going to address the subject of preaching and say that, look, preaching shouldn't be entertainment or things to make people feel good. So hopefully they'll come back to feel good again the next week, that preaching should be Christ-centered that it should be the preaching of the truths about Jesus Christ, that it shouldn't be done by someone who can just wax eloquent as a great performer, but it should be done in the demonstration of the spirit of God's power. And it should be the power of the Holy Spirit that's bringing the word of God to his people. He's gonna say that it's not an academic institution, but a place where God's giving revelation of himself to his people. 
He's going to address spiritual service and eternal rewards. He's going to talk about church discipline, when it's necessary and how it's to happen. He's going to address Christian liberties that we have, but yet not using those liberties selfishly and stumbling other people around us just because we want to exercise our liberty. He'll talk about the dynamics of ministers being supported in their calling and work, how to manage and receive church resources when they're given unto the Lord. He's going to talk about partaking of communion and how to go about doing that, the unity of the body of believers, spiritual gifts, and that they should be operated in, but that God's given parameters and boundaries for how those things are to operate in a way that's healthy and God-honoring and best for people. And even will address in great detail the importance of the resurrection and a clear understanding of the afterlife. So the letter gives a lot of instruction to the individual believer as well as to the church collectively how we are to function as God's family. Notice in the verse one, the letter opens by saying, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother. So the letter opens really exactly how most ancient letters would that were written on scrolls. So you had to open the scroll as you continued to read the letter. So they would identify themselves the author would at the front of the letter rather than signing a letter at the end, which is a more traditional way that we do that. So here Paul identifies himself as the writer, the one who had come there, preached the gospel, pastored them, the one who had invested in their lives. And notice he identifies himself in verse one with his spiritual role. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Again, the word apostle just simply in its original sense means one authorized and sent forth. It speaks of someone who goes forth with the authorization of a throne backing them, and they are sent out with authority. And this is what Paul is saying. This is what I understand God has done in my life. I am one who has been authorized by Jesus Christ. It's not my power authority, but I have been sent forth, a sent one. That's what the apostle, the apostle means sent in the authority of Christ. And notice he indicates in verse one there, this is something he says that he was called to. The idea is something he was drafted for or selected for by the one who wants him to serve his purposes by the ruler. And he'd become an apostle and authorized and enabled for such and commissioned to do that. Notice verse one says, this is how it happened through the will of God. In other words, Paul's saying, this is something that God decided. Paul's saying, I really had nothing to do with the process. All I did was submissively comply with what God determined he wanted by his will. In other words, what Paul wants to make very evident is this is not something that he campaigned for. It's not something that once he had certain credentials, he was ready for. He's saying, look, the only reason I serve and, and, and operate in the way that I do spiritually is because this is what God determined I was supposed to do. And all I did was basically submit to what God's intention was for my life and sought to humbly operate in what God appointed me for and enabled me spiritually to do. So for Paul, as well as for some others in the scripture, they were called to be apostles of Christ through the will of God. But my question this morning is, what are you called to be as a servant of Jesus Christ through the will of God. It's important to discover that. 
It's essential that we understand who God has called us to be by the will of God and that we embrace that in humble faith. God wants each and every one of us who serve him to know and to operate faithfully in our God-given capacity that he is intended for us to be among the body of Christ. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 12, that like a body has all different parts and different functions and members, and they're all interdependent upon one another, and they serve their unique purpose and role. God wants you to faithfully fulfill your spiritual calling among the church body, to know what that is, to embrace it humbly and in faith, to operate in a way where you function among his church family in that important role, as well as to faithfully fulfill your purpose as a servant of Christ out in the world in the ways that God wants to use you to serve him there as well. Paul says in Romans 12 this, he says, just as our bodies have many parts and each part has an essential or special function, so it is with Christ's body. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. You know, how interesting to recognize that God individually, from who we are in our natural aptitudes and capabilities to the way he also can anoint us spiritually with certain desires or capabilities, has given to each of us this capacity to be what he wants us to be through the will of God. You know, for some of you, you may be a children's ministry teacher through the will of God. You may be a musician and worship leader through the will of God. You may be someone who's just, as we read, an encourager through the will of God. Look, I'm so thankful for these past months that God gave us in a church a videographer through the will of God who came here faithfully on Saturdays and pre-recorded church services and went home and edited and spent hours and hours of time so that we could keep gathering. Thank goodness we have a videographer through the will of God. And look, whatever God's called you to be, embrace that and be what God's called you to be through the will of God. There's no higher, greater, smaller calling. The highest calling of God is be who God's called you to be and be that in the body of Christ faithfully. Be a prayer warrior through the will of God. Whatever is God kind of put upon you, just embrace that and operate it. Notice Paul also says in verse one that he was serving together with Sosthenes, our brother. The idea is our spiritual brother. Now, again, we know from Acts 18, the account, that Sosthenes was a ruler of the synagogue there in Corinth. And Acts 18 tells us that unfortunately, during a protest and a riot that broke out in the city of Corinth, that Sosthenes ended up getting beaten up publicly by an angry mob. And it seemed that this angry mob during their protest was just so angry and looking to take out their aggression, and poor Sosthenes just became a a victim of their aggression. Now, I don't know, but perhaps through that personal hardship, maybe Paul and the church had compassion upon Sosthenes and sought to reach out to him and to help him in his difficult hour, to show some compassion and love after he got beaten up. And that opened the doors for them to tell him about Jesus. And so at this point, now we see Sosthenes, he's converted to Christ. 
And more than that, he's even serving in ministry together with Paul the Apostle. What a reminder how sometimes life hardships can become the doorways whereby people end up coming to know the Lord. Sometimes it's the hardest times in people's lives, the most difficult hours and the most painful experiences that cause people to wonder, maybe there's more to life, and maybe I should think about that. You know, I think during this season, certainly we should be praying and asking that God would get the most mileage out of this time as it's been difficult days that hearts would be open to Christ in new and wonderful ways. Well, after his introduction, Paul then addresses in verse 2 who the letter's to. He says, it's to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Notice Paul says the letter is to the church of God, which is at Corinth. And when we read the word church in the Bible, understand that's not a reference to a building or to a facility. It is a reference instead to the actual people of God themselves. That is the spiritual family that meets maybe in a designated facility or a meeting spot. Those who are citizens of heaven who serve and worship Christ together. In fact, that word church that's used in the New Testament, the Greek is ecclesia, and it refers to a assembly that is called out of a population and called together for a special unique purpose. Originally, it was used for even political groups. The idea is that it's a group of people who were summoned and drawn out of a population who come together and recognize that they have a special function and purpose, and so they meet and they gather for those very reasons. That's the term the Bible uses for the church, the assembly. In other words, the church is a spiritual assembly of God's people who have been summoned and called out of the world system to instead become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we assemble together for this purpose. It's why we gather to meet, to worship the Lord, and to receive instruction from our Lord, and to encourage and strengthen each other in our spiritual purpose of serving the Lord. First Peter 2 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you had no identity, but now you are the people of God. The writer of Hebrews says in connection to that as well, and let us consider how we may then spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And he says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. That is not neglecting meeting, he says, as some, he says, are in the habit of doing. Now, this particular church assembly, we're told from verse 2 here, was located at the city of Corinth. And if you can for a moment, let me just give a little background on the city of Corinth, which will help as we go through this letter. The city of Corinth was a large city. It was a famous and densely populated city in the ancient world. It was very prosperous and wealthy. It was a very busy center of activity, kind of much like, if the best way I could illustrate it would be much like kind of like maybe a modern-day Las Vegas, uh, or we might say more close to home, a modern-day Atlantic City. This is kind of the characterization of what Corinth was like. It was located strategically for commerce because it was located on an isthmus, which is basically a land bridge that separates two bodies of sea, the Adriatic Sea and the Aegean Sea, and what we know is 
the area of Greece there in modern day. And what sailors would do is rather than sailing around the southernmost part of the isthmus and taking a 250-mile journey around, they had actually created a system where you pulled into the port of Corinth, and then with a large roller system, they would put your boat on a roller system and pull it across the four-mile land width and put your boat back into the water on the other side. It saved a bunch of extra travel time, and it protected you from dangerous water. So as they would dock their boat and have it pulled across, sailors would hang out in town with time and money and looking for something fun to do for a few days while they got their boat pulled across the water. The city was also famous for idolatry. They had many various gods and goddesses. The primary deity they worshipped, we know, was Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love or fertility. And unfortunately, the worship practices of this particular pagan temple involved many female priestesses as well as male priests, which really were nothing other than prostitutes under a religious setting for hire. And so the practices of worshiping Aphrodite involved contracting for a donation to the temple, the services of one of these priests or priestesses to engage in sexual behavior in a very distorted way. So the city was known, Corinth, for its immoral culture. Again, if you can envision, you have these sailors always passing through with time and money in a few days and looking for a good time. And that kind of bred an environment of immorality to sustain that subculture. So the city was famous for drunkenness, for a wild party spirit, for very loose sexual morals. In fact, in ancient plays, whenever someone portrayed a Corinth, a Corinthian, they were always portrayed as the drunk in the play. They even created derogatory terms. If someone said you have become Corinthianized, the idea is, is you have become a completely immoral person. Now, it is this spiritual black hole, Corinth, this den of iniquity, this city, that Paul the Apostle feels led to go plant a church. And interestingly enough, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God established a church because this says to the church, which is at Corinth. I wonder, as Paul's writing this letter, if perhaps he's almost wanting to remind them from the beginning here, yes, you are at Corinth. Yes, you're among that wild, immoral city, but you are the church at Corinth. You're to be light in the darkness. You're not to be behaving like everyone else around you. You're to be the one in that crooked city showing light and living a higher way. And in light of that, I wonder if perhaps the remainder of verse 2, what's there, is the Holy Spirit identifying in such a way they're calling to indicate what it means to be a part of God's church, even in the city of Corinth. The first thing we notice there is those who are part of God's church are those who've experienced a change in their spiritual condition, a change in their spiritual condition. He says, you are those, verse 2, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Again, whenever we read the term in Christ Jesus, it refers being in a spiritual relationship with Christ. The Bible portrays it like a marriage relationship where a husband and a wife come together and they now have one shared life. That that's what it's like when we come to Jesus Christ. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. And to be in Christ means that when we receive Christ as Savior and Lord and put our faith in him, that by a powerful work of the Holy Spirit, we were joined together our life with the life of Christ in every way. And therefore, positionally, 
you are no longer viewed in the old person, but now your life is pictured absorbed in the life of Jesus Christ. And that's how God views us, thank goodness. Our old sinful status and identity has been removed and we've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when God looks upon you positionally, he sees you hidden in Christ and he sees you righteous like his son, Jesus Christ. He doesn't see your past sins or your present struggles with sins. He sees you righteous and he allows you to relate to him with that favorable opportunity because of the righteousness of Jesus that's made you holy and righteous in his sight and given you access to heaven one day. And it's in that relationship with Jesus Christ, Paul says, verse 1 here, those who are in Christ have been sanctified, he says. And the word sanctified means set apart for a special purpose. That's the idea of being sanctified. Those who've been set apart for an exclusive function, a particular set purpose. Again, by an experience of the Holy Spirit, when we received Christ, we were set apart, and that is set apart from no longer serving Satan, no longer serving the world system, no longer serving our selfish, sinful nature. We've been set apart now for a different purpose. That's to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a follower of him. Now, that sanctifying or saving process, that sanctifying process happens kind of, if you would, in almost three ways, you might fairly say. For example, let me explain. We have been sanctified or set apart from the punishment of sin. The moment you receive Jesus Christ, you were sanctified and set apart from the punishment that we deserve for sin. You are forgiven, washed in the blood of Christ. Your guilt is removed. You are righteous in Christ and have direct access to God now. Secondly, we are also sanctified or saved, if you would, in a way that we're being sanctified from the power of sin. That is, we're being continually sanctified and set apart from the power of sin operating in our lives. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we now have an ability to overcome temptation. And by the work of the Spirit happening in our life, he is making us become more like Jesus. So we've been sanctified, set apart away from sin's punishment. We're being sanctified presently from the power of sin controlling us. And one day, thanks be to God, we're going to be sanctified or set apart from the presence of sin forever. As we're taken out of this world and we're in glory and experience the fullness of everything that God desires for our lives. The second thing we notice Paul mentions, which indicates that what it means to be part of God's church, is that also those part of God's church have experienced a change in their spiritual status. Or you might say their eternal destiny. You notice he adds as well in verse 2, those who are called to be saints. Literally could be translated holy ones. That is, we've been selected by God to be holy. We've been selected by God to be righteous. Now, take notice in your Bible, the words to be are probably in an italics. Whenever you see that, that's an indication that those words to be aren't really in the original manuscript that was added by the translators when they brought it to English because they thought it would shed a little extra light on the interpretation. Now, here I don't know if that's actually the most helpful thing because literally the way it reads in verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Not called to be saints, called saints. In other words, God says biblically, if you're in a right relationship with my son, you're a saint. 
That's what a saint is from God's perspective. It's not someone who you know, does good and charitable deeds and lives a very pious life, and then at a certain point they achieve saint status. The only person who's a biblical saint is someone who's in a right relationship with Jesus Christ, those who've become a part of his church. The important thing for us is, look, because we're saints, we should choose to walk worthy of the calling that we've received and live holy and righteous lives in accordance with what our position is. Well, the third thing we take note of in verse 2 there is another part of being God's church. Notice, are those who are sincerely seeking to participate in seeking out the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he says there? He speaks of those joining with all churches among every place. He says the end of the verse, who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, to call on the name of the Lord speaks of seeking him personally through worship and through prayer. It begins with those who've called upon the name of the Lord for salvation and have said, Jesus, save me. We've called on the name of the Lord for salvation. And it also refers then to those who routinely afterwards continue to call upon the Lord in worship and praise and singing and expressing to him glory and honor. Those who regularly are calling upon the Lord Jesus in prayer, seeking his help and guidance. Now, my purpose for emphasizing that is this. It is not just, from God's perspective, it is not just attending church services or sitting in a church building or graciously participating and observing a church service that makes you part of God's church. What makes you part of God's church is you have had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church and who is the only doorway into the church. And so important that we remember that God says those who are a part of my church are those who are in a right relationship with my son, Jesus Christ. Well, finally, notice the end of verse two and verse three, the Holy Spirit impresses Paul to refer to Jesus as Lord. Notice two times. He says the end of verse two, all those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Then again, verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord means supreme ruler or master, one who's in complete control over a servant. Look, let me say, this is where the Corinthians had gotten off track in their spiritual lives. They had gotten off track as a church because they knew Jesus Christ as Savior, but they weren't honoring Jesus Christ as Lord. They weren't living properly with him as Lord, and hence, therefore, the selfish behavior among the church family, the sinful activity that was continuing to go on right among the church family. Look, important for all of us. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our spiritual practice should be consistent with our spiritual profession as well as our spiritual position. And if we call Jesus Lord, we need to recognize we have an obligation in regards to what that means. And that only happens as we live submissively to the lordship of Jesus over our lives. Jesus asked a searching question. This is what he said. He said, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things which I say? See, there's the inconsistency thing there. Hey, this morning, ask yourself before the Lord, if you claim Jesus as Lord, how are you living in respect of that in your everyday life? Shall we stand together?